name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. So glad that you're here if you're new with us. Like Laura said, just can't wait to meet you and get connected. And uh, what a perfect time to be doing that. Um, if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to the Gospel of John? Uh, John chapter 16. If you don't have one, there are some in the seats in front of you. So if you do grab the, the Bibles in the seat in front of you, we're on page uh, 959. So... Um, Go ahead and get turned there. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, Let me just get you up to speed. We're four weeks into uh, a sermon series we're calling The Five C's. It's a bit of a vision series, so so I appreciate you just sort of bearing with us. These these in some ways are like lectures. They're long uh, uh, sermons, so thanks for bearing with us. But there's so much uh, about the DNA of who we are as a church and who who we are as Christians uh, just packed into these. So... Um, they're a little bit longer. Um, you may need to go back and listen to them again, but if you grasp what we're talking about and you run the cycle of the five C's again and again in your life, what you'll experience is transformation, growth, uh, and the presence of God. And that, that's what we want for you. That's our hope. That's all we could hope for as a church is to usher in the presence of God and, and his transforming power into your life. That's what we want. So um, just uh, the five C's, if, if you don't know, are... Uh, what are they? <laughs> Connection, conversation, which leads to consideration. Ryan talked about that last week. This week we're talking about conviction, and then next week we'll talk about confession. Okay, so this is the process, and you do it over and over and over and over again, hopefully millions of times in your life. And, and I just want to share real quick, uh, this happened for me. Uh, this story touches so many points in my sermon, and so this is like a bit of a teaser. Just stay tuned. You'll see how many points of this sermon this touches. But this happened to me on Thursday night after Alpha. Alpha is our introduction to Christianity. It's like the Rosetta Stone of Christianity, the basic things, and uh, night one, and it was so much fun, and uh, I have a great table of guys, and I'm just so excited about it. And, and usually, several times throughout the course, because we, we um, co-host this with another church community called Central Community Church, and uh, the lead pastor of that church, we're like so similar in so many ways. We both planted our church a little over six years ago, and so um, his name is Jeff Neuenschwander, and so he's one of my best friends, um, keeps me accountable, uh, we cry together, we laugh together, and so we went out and had a beer after Alpha, uh, as we are in the habit of doing sometimes, just talking, catching up, and we got into a conversation, so we connected, you see this, bodily connection, we had a conversation about how things were going, our life, our families, uh, our ministry, and, and, and through it, Jeff said something that, you know, we stirred it up. We talked about <laughs> the mouse that stirs up the cream and it turns in, or uh, the milk turns into cream. And, and this idea escaped, and I considered it. I never thought about it before. Something Jeff said. And I had this conviction like, oh my gosh, I've, I've been missing this. It wasn't that I didn't understand the importance of the local church. It was that I understand it more now than I ever have before. Jeff said something in our conversation. It led to me to consider, wait a minute. And I had this conviction. And now what am I going to do? I'm about to share it with you, aren't I? I'm about to confess that I didn't quite see this. When we gather together, this is what Jeff said that I considered, and I had this conviction. The, the, the mere fact that we're gathering together right now, and who did we just sing praise to? Jesus <laughs> is in itself perhaps the most profound act of acknowledging who Jesus is in the world. Just the mere fact that we met together. So if you're not yet a Christian, or you're still wrestling with, who is this Jesus? I just want you to ask yourself a very simple question. Are you the same as him? Because if you believe he's just a man, 
and nothing more. Just like you, the human being, you got to wrestle with the fact that I just heard all y'all singing the name of a man who lived 2,000 years ago and died in his 30s. And that's not just happening right here, right now in Seattle, Washington. That's happening millions and millions of times over around this globe. So, this is the conviction I had. How can Jesus be just like you? I never thought about it like that. Confession. Wow. I'm just I'm singing those songs. Great job by the band. I mean, the band just led us in a beautiful worship there of Jesus, the carpenter's son. Perhaps there's more to his story than you might have thought. So, this is how the five C's work, and it's happened to me. It's happened on Thursday night. See, it happens over and over and over again. And now I've completed the cycle. I've confessed to you this new epiphany, this new conviction I had that our mere gathering, no matter what else happens, but that we're gathering in the name of Jesus is in fact a proclamation of the uniqueness of this one man. Now, we're connecting again. <laughs> we're going to consider some more, converse some more, have a conversation about Scripture, consider some more. I hope perhaps some conviction happens. And then perhaps you can go into your cohort and confess, I never thought about that before, or I was wrong, or... Whatever it is. And we just do it again and again and again. Over time, that growth begins to happen, and we come in alignment, in attunement, with the reality of the world, of the song of God, whose chorus is Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. So fun. So beautiful. So today, we get to jam a bit on conviction. And one of the things I hope you're seeing through all this, and you'll see it more today and next week probably than any of the other seas, is that these seas... There's more to them than you thought. Maybe you've thought about them a little bit wrong. Maybe you hear the word conviction and you only think one thing and, and yeah, you don't like it. There's so much more to these C's than you might have thought. So I hope you experience that today as well. So let's get right into it. A lot to do. Um, last week, Ryan talked about the road to Emmaus. Um, what had happened in the story, there was these two disciples, not a part of the inner circle, not a part of the twelve, not the apostles, but other disciples who had been following Jesus, following his teaching, considered him a prophet, um, but Jesus had died. And so all the disciples, not just the twelve, uh, or the eleven at this point, get together and nothing happens for a few days, and so the third day comes and these disciples, they decide to head home, because they're all in Jerusalem. I guess this whole thing is over, I guess our rabbi's dead, and, and we'll head home. So they're heading home, and then all of a sudden, um, a stranger begins to walk and talk with them. And at this point, their eyes uh, are somehow kept from noticing it's a Jesus, or we're not sure exactly why they don't recognize him, but Jesus connects with them, right? And then Jesus has a conversation with them, and he explains to them about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and how even the things that have happened in Jerusalem were predicted, and, and, and so they invite him in, uh, to stay with them, and they eat a meal together, and, and, and these two uh, men are considering all these things that they've talked about. And so let me just read to you real uh, quickly here. Um, you don't have to turn there. Stay, stay in John, but uh, Luke 24 talks about this, and this is what says happened next, right? So that there, there are three C's into the cycle. And then uh, in Luke 24, verse 30, it says this, um, it was as he reclined at the table with them, that's as Jesus, the risen Jesus, risen from the dead, reclined with them at the table, and he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then it says this, 
Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But then he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? You see that? Their eyes were opened, and it says their hearts were burning. That's conviction. They were experiencing something. And then it says that they, that very hour, they got up. It's probably the middle of the night, like Ryan said. And they just ran back to Jerusalem, and they found the other disciples, who Jesus had also appeared to. And they're like, wait, he, he appeared to you too? He appeared to us. And they explained, they confessed everything that had happened. So they go through the full sea cycle. But it's really that their hearts were burning. Other, other word in, where places in Scripture it said, and they were cut to the heart. Their eyes were opened. And so the first thing I want you to hear about conviction is conviction is a very internal thing. Whereas confession is a very external thing or public thing, conviction is a very internal thing. So um, something's happening to the heart, and we'll talk about that more in just a second. Um, but we need confession, right? So like if they had just stayed and kept these things to themselves, we wouldn't know about this. So conviction without confession is dangerous, Selfish, actually. Just like conviction without true consideration is dangerous. Because you might be coming to conclusions about truth without ever letting it, like Ryan said, take center stage. Without getting yourself out of the way so you can see the thing and consider it and look at it with an eternal perspective. Man, if you didn't, if you didn't watch last week, go back. We use the word consider here so often. Ryan did a fantastic job explaining. It, it, considering is not just thinking. It's a soul-level activity where you think with your eternal, heavenly body in mind. So if you, do, if you have conviction without that, be very, very cautious. Because you need that to have the kind of conviction that we hope for. Now, the other thing I just want to point out from this story before we move on is look at the language. Is it passive or active? What happened to them? Their eyes were opened. By whom? It doesn't say they opened their eyes. It says their eyes were opened. Then what does it say? Weren't our hearts burning? Not, weren't we making our hearts burn? Like, our hearts were burning. Like, when he was talking, when we were considering what he was saying, like, we were experiencing something that was out of our control. It's very important to understand that about conviction. The Greek word that will be used in the John 16 passage that gets translated convict Elencho is the Greek word. It can mean both to convict and to expose. You see both of that in this passage. Their eyes were opened and their hearts burned. And every time this word is used in the New Testament, the human being is not the actor. They're the one acted upon. So important. We'll see why in just a moment here. So, so what is conviction, biblically speaking? Well, the first thing I want to say, to make it so clear, um, up front, is that it's so much more than just feeling conviction for sin or wrong. It's more, like sometimes you might hear the word conviction and only think about feeling guilty. That's for sure, to be clear, a part of conviction or one of the expressions of conviction, but it's not the only thing. So if that's the only way you've heard the word conviction used, I just want to be excited. There's so much more to Experiencing conviction, though it is a part of it. So what is it? So um, I'm going to just talk sort of philosophically for a second, and then I'm a, we're going to look at John 16. 
It's, it's another level of knowing. It's like, get on the elevator, get on the elevator, and go to the next level of knowing. Like, I thought I knew, but now I know. And this can happen with the same thing over and over and over and over again. So many levels to knowing. And this conviction is sort of like pushing that button to the next level. I didn't realize this went so high, this building. Two weeks ago, we talked, uh, I mentioned, Jesus says, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your strength and your mind and your soul and your heart. And I flipped those if, you know, if you've memorized that verse. Um, and I put heart at the end because the strength we talked about is like the body. It's like to put yourself in, the body is not bad. The body is good. To, to love God with your whole physical being. And then to love God with your mind, which is your intellect and your reason. To let yourself be renewed by the, by the Spirit of God. Your mind, your intellect, your reason. To love God with that whole part of yourself. And then, and then it says your soul. That is the immaterial, eternal, everlasting nature of who you are. Love God with all of that as well. And then, and then he says it first, but I think it really is the culmination of it all. He says love him with your heart. And so heart... Um, in, in both the, the Hebrew understanding of it and even in the way the Greek word that's used here, it's like all of these things knit together. It's like the fullness of all, the body, the mind, the soul, all of that is your heart. So it's like the center of the person, or the Greek word means the seat of the will, the conscience, and the emotion. It's the, it's the, it's, it's, um, it's the central part of who you are. So you start, as we've talked about, you go back and listen to these sermons, you put your body in the right place, you put your mind in the right place, and, and you consider with your soul, and then what happens is conviction, which is your heart, begins to change. That's where conviction lives, in the heart. It's so much more than just, I'm not just talking about just, the heart is not just emotion. It's so much more in, in the Greek understanding of the word. So it's, it's like coming to know something is true at the most ultimate level, the most complete level the most thorough level, and it includes the mind to be sure, but it never stops in the mind. It's when, it's when a truth uh, comes from the head and moves its way down to the heart. From the head to the heart, that's, that's when you know conviction has happened. So I asked a lot of people this week, what does conviction mean to you, people that have experienced this? Uh, one person said, it's, the, it's like assurance. It's the assurance of truth. It's so true. It says this in Hebrews that, that faith is the, uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. It's like, assur- like I haven't seen it, I don't, I, I but I know it's true at this deeper level. Another person said it's like settledness. It's the settledness of reality. Like I'm settled that this is true. So I, I call it like, like it's like knowing something at the gut level. You had that experience like I just... My gut just knows this is true. Now, this leads us into, when we have this assuredness, this settledness, um, this conviction, it leads us, it's like a prerequisite for trusting. It's like, I, I actually trust that. Sometimes if it's just in the head, you might know it or say you believe it, but you don't really trust it. So when conviction moves it from the head to the heart, now I trust it, therefore I act in real ways upon it. I use this knowledge now and act upon it. So you could say it, you could say it like this. Conviction is a lot like love. And love is hard to define, isn't it? But you know it. 
when you experience it. Some of you may have never experienced this, and you're always asking people who seem to be in love, like, how do you know when you're in love? And they're like, you'll just know. <laughs> it's like the, the, the worst answer. You're like, that doesn't help me. Uh, and then you experience it, you're like, oh, now I see why they couldn't explain it. It's just like this thing that happens to you, but then you know when it's happened. So you're dating somebody, um, and you can, you, you can get to a point in dating where you're like, they make sense to me, and I like the sense that they make. It works, it's good, it computes, but that's not yet love. Just them making sense to you, and you be able to work with that, and you've been able to partner together, like, that's not love. Like, just that it makes sense to you is not love, Right? It becomes love when the make, they make sense to me turns into they have power over me. But love is scary. So there's like this weightiness to it. There's like this positional quality where the truth um, rises up above, above these other faculties and, and it almost has control over you, right? Like when you fall in love, it's different than just this person makes sense to me. It's like this person has some power or control over me, this truth of this thing that I've experienced. That's what conviction is. Like when you have conviction about a truth, it now moves above other things and then informs those things. And that way it's like love. Hard to define, but yet we kind of get it. So, does this seem like it's something important to understand, right? I hope so. I didn't spend a lot of time trying to convince you that you should pay attention. Are you paying attention? <laughs> okay. So what's the right kind of conviction? It's just like we can fall into the wrong kind of love. We don't want to fall into the wrong kind of conviction. So what, biblically speaking, is the right kind of conviction? And, second question, should we strive to be people of conviction, or is that too dangerous? I think these two questions have to be answered together. Let me explain why. We've all seen examples of people of conviction gone wrong. Right? Like, we just celebrated the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. The hijackers were people of conviction. They were convicted at a heart level that what they were doing was the right thing to do. I don't want to be like that. We've seen it in the political wars. Not just the last four years, but the last 10,000. On every side, people of conviction that just scare the living daylights out of us, right? Well, I don't be like that. Maybe I should just be a person of no conviction, of indifference, because that's less dangerous. I won't be like that. And we'll see what the Bible calls conviction is, is very different than political conviction or even misplaced conviction in a religious system. So, um, think of a courtroom. Think of a courtroom. So, we come into a courtroom. Uh, there's a jury. There's a judge. Um, in many ways, the jury is an extension of the judge, meaning the jurors are the judges, right? So, their job is to look at all the evidence, have a conversation with the evidence, have a conversation with the lawyers, have a conversation with the defendant, and their job is to what? Convict or not convict. And... Another reason why we're so afraid of the word conviction is because we realize, when we think of the courtroom, many people have been falsely convicted. Right? That's just obvious. That when it's human beings convicting other human beings, often we get it wrong. Our conviction is misplaced. False conviction. I don't want to be a part of that, right? 
Like, so I'm going to stay away. I'm not going to be, I don't want to engage myself personally in, in this fourth seat, and I don't want to be used in any way <laughs> to bring upon conviction because I've seen that gone wrong, right? Keep that all in the back of your mind. Now let's read John chapter 6, 16. Chapter 16. Actually, I'm going to start in John chapter 14. So if you're already to John chapter 16, turn back just two chapters to John chapter 14. And we're going to look starting in verse 15. So John 14, verse 15. Now, the context here is that um, the, the, the disciples, the apostles, have met now in an upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. So this is right before the thing we reenact every week with the body and the blood of Christ. Before Jesus initiates that, he does some teaching about many things, about what's to come. Okay, so that's the context. You might say this is a pretty important message Jesus is about to share. It's his last message before he's crucified. So John 14, 15 says this. Jesus is talking. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Clear enough. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you for how long? Forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Well, this is like, well, we don't know about this. We come to know the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. The spirit of the Father and the spirit of Christ sent to his children. So at this moment, they're like, well, we don't really know him. We never met him. But Jesus is like, yeah, you have I'm right here. So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's important to remember that. There's no distinction. There's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus says, you already know him because <laughs> he's me in spiritual form. So I'm going to send him to you is what he says. Now, jump forward now to John 15, next chapter, verse 26. John 15, verse 26. It says this. When the counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit, the one I will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay? Now jump down. We're still, again, in the upper room, about to eat together, and he's telling them all these crazy things. <laughs> then he says, John chapter 16, so just move your eye down the page a little bit, to verse 7. Nevertheless, I am telling you, pointing at the disciples, the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, look at this, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and will no longer be, uh, no longer see, you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Okay. Here we go. This is convict language. In a very important, climactic moment in Jesus' ministry, he says, I'm sending you the Spirit, and he will do what? Convict. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Whoa. I'm going to break that down. First thing I want you to notice, what kind of conviction is this? Is this a conviction of your peer group, of your coworkers, of your friends, of your favorite newscaster? Who's doing the convicting? 
Somebody say it. The Holy Spirit. God is doing the convicting. This is the kind of conviction Jesus wants for you. The conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, the one he sent, the counselor. This is a loving gift that he's giving you because he wants you to experience the right kind of conviction. You were built for conviction. Like it's clear because everybody, even those who don't have the Holy Spirit, are convicted of things, right? We'll talk about this in a second. He wants you to have this kind of conviction that comes from the loving counselor who will convict you of all truth. It's, it comes from the Spirit. That's the kind of conviction we want to experience in our life, from the Holy Spirit. So back to our court, courtroom analogy. Right? Man-made convictions of a jury of our peers. Like, it's necessary, it's a part of our world, I'm glad that we have a legal system, but Jesus said, that's not the kind of ultimate conviction I want you to experience. Versus God-made conviction. From a divine jury, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what I want you to experience. I want your convictions to come from that. Because that is truth, absolute, perfect. It's what you want. So in this sense, right, like the philosophers of our, some philosophers of our day have got it right. The great Tupac Shakur said, only God can judge me now, right? Only God can judge me now, he says. If you don't, I've never heard that song, listen to that song. There's truth in that song. I'm not saying there's truth in every other part of his life, but there's truth in that song. Only God can judge me now. That's what Jesus is saying. Only God can judge you. Only God's conviction is the one that lasts forever. That's what I want you to experience now so that you might transform your life. I was asking somebody this week, what does conviction mean to you? And they said, it's like uh, making up your mind. Have your mind made up. And I thought that's so good, and I think it comes in three stages. The first stage, often for many of us, even if you're born in a Christian home, is like, they made up my mind for me. Like, my parents made up my mind for me. Or my church made up my, their mind for me. And this can happen in the religious world, and it can happen in the political world, and it can happen in, in so many places. Like, somebody else, they, my peer group made up my mind for me. But my mind's made up. I have conviction. I, that's what I believe. But when I look back on it, I was like, they made it up for me. And then you sort of mature, and you say, I better, I better decide for myself. And so you say, and so you go through a process. You say, I made up my mind. So we move from, like, a second person... A second-hand conviction, they made it up, to a first-hand conviction, I made up my mind. You say, like, that's a really good thing. But wait, (laughs) there's another stage. Like, I made up my mind, again, leaves me in that place Ryan talked about last week where I'm the center of knowledge, I'm the center of truth, I'm the center. I made up my mind. God says, no, I want to take you to another higher level, which is what? God made up my mind. So ask yourself on your convictions. Did they make up my mind? Did I make up my mind? Or did God make up my mind? That's what I call divine hand conviction. Second-hand conviction, first-hand conviction, divine hand conviction. Man, that's what Jesus wants for you. Because what? If we're honest, I can't really trust myself, depending on what I eat that day, depending on what's going on in my life. I, like, I can trust God, though. So I want my convictions to be rooted in him, what he says is true, what he says is right. So you can ask yourself, who revealed this to me? Who revealed this to me? If it was God, I know I can trust it. What kind of conviction have you experienced? On a number of topics, on a number of things. 
So we'll, we'll come right back to this in just a second. I think there's four types of conviction you can experience in the world. And we only really have one word for it, conviction, but they're not the same thing. We'll come right back to that in just a second. But for now, just know what we're pushing towards is divine hand conviction, which is God reaching down into the world and convincing you and convicting you of the truth. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. So what, based on John 16, is the Holy Spirit most concerned about? What is he here to convict of? Well, let's look at it. He's here to convict, to reveal, to expose, to confirm what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You could say it like this. What's wrong, what's right, and why it matters. What's wrong, what's right, and why that matters. Okay? Let's walk through them here real quick. Sin, what's wrong? So here we're talking not just about wrong action, We are talking about wrong action, using your body, using your mind, using your words in the wrong way. But we're also talking about wrong thinking. Now, actually, we usually flip those. We've got to start and correct our wrong thinking as it leads into right action. So the Holy Spirit does convict us of sinful actions or sinful living, ways of living, ways of being, ways of using all that God has given us in the wrong way. He convicts us of that. And this is the part we don't like. We don't, we don't want people to feel guilty. We don't want people to feel convicted. It seems wrong to be a part of that. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there. The 2 Corinthians verse 9, if you want to go back and look at it later. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this. He says, I now rejoice. Why is, why is he rejoicing? I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you uh, didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What's this grieving he's talking about? This feeling of conviction of sin, of wrong action, of wrong speech, that if you understand the context of the letter has been happening in the church. And Paul had written a letter to them, sort of challenging them. Look at the way you're living. It's wrong. It's, it's contrary to God's will and design in the world. And so they ex- experience conviction from Paul's letter. And Paul is writing to them as an agent of the Holy Spirit. And so they experience godly grief, he says, And he rejoices in it. Why? Because it leads them to repentance, turning from their wrong ways, turning from ways that lead to death to ways that lead to life. And he does it here, doesn't he? He says there's two kinds of grief. There's godly grief and worldly grief, which is him just highlighting you can experience conviction for sin that comes from the world that's not actually sin. That's called false guilt. And he says that leads to death. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced worldly grief, worldly conviction that leads to death, that destroys your soul? Have you also experienced godly grief, conviction of real sin that actually leads to repentance and life? There's two kinds. And we want the kind that comes from the Holy Spirit. We want godly grief, godly conviction, because it leads to repentance and salvation, he says. Both now, freedom from sin, freedom from those things that just keep dragging you down into life and life everlasting. It's a beautiful passage. I've never quite seen it the way I saw it this week. So sin is real. God is going to convict us, with, give us godly grief for our sins so that we turn and repent from our ways and move towards life. 
And that's good. We rejoice in that. So actually, you shouldn't fear conviction. You should seek it out. God, convict me. Like, sometimes we don't know. Like, is this thing contrary to your will? God, if it is, convict me. And are you willing to consider it, open it up, and, and put it out there, and let God say, that is wrong? Do you want that? Do you want to know if God think, what God thinks about that? You should, because Paul says it leads to salvation and life. So don't be scared of feeling conviction. You should be scared of feeling worldly conviction, but not godly conviction. So you've got to, of course, have a good relationship with God. Cultivate your relationship with God so you know if it's him convicting and not the world. So, John actually gives us a little even more insight into what he, he means by this conviction because it's not just, again, convicting of what's wrong in our actions, but also what's wrong in our uh, uh, thinking. Now look at what he says. Verse, um, oh shoot, gotta go back here. Chapter 16, verse 9. He, he goes on to explain about sin, about the conviction of sin. This is how he explains it. Because they do not believe in me. This is Jesus talking. <laughs> Wait, what? What, what? What is he talking about here? Jesus says, the conviction of sin is important because they do not believe in me. John has written down the words of Jesus that, that explain something very, very important. The most basic, the most profound, the most important sin in any of our lives is the sin of unbelief in Jesus. Like, that's the worst thing in all the world that I could do? Feels like there's a lot of worse things I could do than not believe in Jesus. Jesus says no. That is the greatest, most basic, and most important thing to figure out. <laughs> you get that wrong, he says, nothing else matters. Why is that? Because without knowing that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for your other sins, even you recognizing your sin means nothing. It just means you feel guilty for the rest of your life and eternity. Jesus says, if you get right the truth about me, then all your other sins are accounted for by the cross of Christ. So the most important sin that you need to wrestle with, if you're not yet a Christian, this is the most important thing you need to, you need to spend your time wrestling with this. You can think about the other sins, you can kind of just know they're out there, but the thing you need to focus on is, are you thinking wrongly about Jesus? Because he's the only promise of accounting for all the others according to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Do I need to repent in my thinking about who Jesus is? That he's just a man, just like me. And his death is noble, an example of loving your friends and, 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 and really caring about what you believe in to the point of death, but that's it. Or is Jesus who he said he was? The very son of God, the God-man, God in the flesh, come and his death on a cross absorbs the penalty that's due for your conviction of every other sin so that you are now in the sight of God, free, clear, no longer convicted, and free to engage again in God's good world and God's person through relationship with him. What is it? <laughs> Until you get that right, Jesus says, nothing else matters. So it's not surprised why we talk a lot about helping you consider Jesus here at Sedaris. Second thing he says, righteousness. 
Spirit comes to convict of righteousness. So whereas sin is a missing of a mark or getting something wrong, righteousness is getting something right. This is good news. The Spirit comes to also help you know what's right. The right action, the right thinking, what's true, what's truly beautiful, all these things. Look at verse 10. So Jesus says about righteousness, about this conviction of righteousness. He's going to do that for you. The Spirit is going to do that for you because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. What? What is he saying? Well, Jesus is righteousness walking. You want to know what's right, the right way to live, the right way to be a human, the right way to do anything? You just do exactly what Jesus is doing. And Jesus says, but in order to fulfill my plan, I must ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven, in the heavenlies, and I'll send you my spirit so that my presence is not limited to one space at one time, right? We don't have to go to Jerusalem to encounter God anymore. He sent his spirit. We can encounter him right here this morning. Jesus said, that's why I got to go. But he said, because of that, you're not going to get to watch me walk through every potential situation that ever exists so that you know exactly what to do. That's why you need the spirit to convict you of what's righteous. Meaning, Jesus never walked through capitalism. How do we live in a capitalistic culture? What's enough? How do we do, what do we do with our money? How do we give it away? What, you know, we need the spirit to help us. Jesus never had to deal with the internet, with social media. Like, how would Jesus do this? He said, you can't watch me do it, but the spirit will convict you of what's righteous in things like that. Because Jesus is righteousness walking, but since we can't see him and watch him engage, we need the Spirit to convict us of how we might live in the world. Because it's the Spirit of Christ telling us. So, so much you can say about each of these. Let's move on, though. The third thing, he says, the Spirit's going to come and convict you of judgment. What? (laughs) Like, okay. Why is that at the back end? What's going on here? Well, that's what did I say. That's why this matters. Why does it matter to know what's right? What's wrong? How to live? How to not live? How to think? How to not think? Like, why does it matter? He says, the Spirit will come and convict the world of judgment. That is, of judgment day. Of this moment that the Scriptures talk about when all of us will stand before our judge. Tupac says, only God can judge me now. God says, that's right. I will judge you. Now, with that knowledge, that Spirit's convicted me. Like, we can't see it. We don't know. It's never happened yet but I can feel a conviction deep down in my heart, in my bones, that this is going to happen. That's important to know. But again, it's not something we can see. It's something yet to come. And the Spirit will convict you that that's coming. Meaning, it matters how you live and if you live into God's truth or outside of God's truth. It matters. The Spirit's the one that convicts you of that. Nothing escapes the sight of God, the Spirit will tell you. Nothing, no deed, no thought. Everything is exposed to him. He doesn't need anybody to open his eyes. They're fully open. And that should terrify us. Terrifies me. Terrifies me. But I know about Jesus. So I'm not, I'm not paralyzed. I can move and I can live and I can ask for repentance or ask for forgiveness in my repentance. Like when we are convicted of judgment day, The next thought in our mind should be, I need something or someone to save me. Because I know what that jury's coming back with, because I know what I've done. And that's why I turn to Jesus. Because we also know what God's done. 
Spirit does that. He convicts of these things. And I'm so thankful for it. Now, how does truth uh, or conviction of truth or error normally happen today? How does it normally happen today? Look at in the, just the next verses here, John 16, verse 12. So Jesus is still telling them. So I know that's kind of might be hard for you to understand. Let me tell you a little bit more here. He says this. I still have many things to tell you. Whew, good. Okay, what are they? He says, but you can't bear them now. <laughs> okay, whoa. <sighs> Making me wait. Okay, verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of, on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears from who? From me and the Father. He will also declare to you what is to come. He'll tell you about things in the future. So think about like the book of Revelation that John himself will pen. I'll tell you some about the future. I'll tell you. He will glorify me, the Spirit will glorify Christ, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and he will declare it to you. Now this is important. What did he say just up the page here in verse 8? He says, he will convict, that's the Holy Spirit will convict who? The world. But then here he says, he will guide you into all truth, and he'll tell you about the things to come. What's going on here? Like, why does he switch this up? Because even before he says he'll convict the world, he's using the you language, which, which I interpret as the you of the 12 disciples that are in the room. I think this is what's happening. I think we get this wrong sometimes. He's telling his 12 inner circle disciples, of course, Judas will betray him, and Judas will be replaced by the Apostle Paul. These 12 apostles, I'm going to give you some insider information about the future and things to come, about other truths that other people will not know unless you tell them. I do think God gives us truth through the Holy Spirit, but not, the kind of, not in the same way he's talking to the 12 disciples. He convicts the world, that's everybody, including the disciples, of sin and righteousness and judgment, but he's giving you, to the 12 disciples, all truth. Why is this important? Some of us think we're the apostles. We think Jesus says this to us. So we think of a topic, and we stand here, and we see God will convict me of all truth. And we get it totally wrong. Jesus didn't say that. He said, I'm going to give you, the disciples, the words of life. So how should we seek the conviction of the Holy Spirit now? We've got to go through the words of the apostles. That's why we study the scriptures. Yes, we have a relationship with God through the Spirit. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. But the things that are to come, the way to engage with Jesus, he's giving special information, special revelation to the 11 apostles and the apostle Paul. And so we read the New Testament and we realize we're talking with the Holy Spirit. So you want to know how to, how do I, how do I search for this conviction? You search for it through the words of the apostles because Jesus sat there in the upper room and says, I'm going to give you guys some insider information about truth. And you need to reveal it to the rest of the world. I'm going to convict them of sin and righteousness and their lack thereof and the judgment that comes from that, and then you've got to tell them how to get right with me. 
So if you sit there and say, I'm like the apostles, I don't need their teaching, I don't need their stuff, they're bogus, they're bonk, I can do this on my own, it's nice to see a couple of you know, really holy, dedicated men and, and the things they had to say, you're missing it. Jesus is saying to them, through you, truth will be revealed because the Holy Spirit will inspire your words that I will protect until Seattle, Washington, 2021, and people will read them and they will come to be convicted of what's true and right and good and beautiful and how they can experience salvation through Jesus Christ their Lord. So don't get this wrong. You can't just sit over there and think about things on your own and say, it seems to me this is right. It seems to me this is true. And I'm pretty sure that's the Holy Spirit convicting me. He doesn't work like that anymore. He did that with the apostles and with the prophets, but now he does it through the word of God, which is why you've got to know this. You've got to study this, particularly study the New Testament, which is the most advanced revelation of what God is doing and what he will do in the future. I hope this is clear. This is called apostolic Christianity, and I'll tell you what, friends, people are trying to tear that down. There are people out there that want to tell you you're like the apostles, and you get to decide what's true, like they did. No, because they didn't decide it. The Holy Spirit worked through them to write the New Testament. <sighs> I'm about to get sweaty up here. Okay. This is how it primarily works. We study the words of the Holy Spirit through this, and then in prayer, we ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of the truth of this and to understand this and to apply this to our lives. That's how it works. And to do it your own way is just you being silly. Okay, now let me jump back very quickly. I don't have a lot of time for this, so we can, I don't know, when we, might talk, we might come back to this. I think we're going to extend this series because we love it so much and give you some more examples of the five C's. But let me just throw it up real quick, explain these four levels of conviction that I think happen in the world, okay? Um, on the bottom level, little conviction. This is like people saying, because my tribe, my people say so. It could be all sorts of tribes, political tribes, ethnic tribes, um, religious tribes, this is little C conviction, but it, you feel it, right? Like, you feel like, I'm pretty sure that's true because this is why my people think are true. Uh, for in, so the last column is, for instance, should I drink alcohol? Little, little, little conviction is no, because I'm a Baptist. I told you the story earlier of me and Jeff having a, having a beer together. I think it's okay, personally, I believe it's okay to drink alcohol. But... Some people don't, and sometimes it's only because, well, this is just what my denomination says. Okay, next level up, the, I call this the, the ladder of conviction. We want to climb the ladder of conviction in our life. So again, I'm not saying it's wrong that all you have is little c conviction. I'm just saying there's more, better, truer conviction to come. The next level is conscience. So the Bible tells us that uh, God put uh, his eternal truths into our heart. We have a conscience, which is why People generally think it's wrong to kill people, right? Like, where does that come from? Like, that's your conscience. Like, we just see things as generally right or wrong. We all have a conscience, right? Now, the Bible is very clear that your conscience can become seared to the point where you can't trust it anymore, that you call evil things good and good things evil. Like, so that's true. But in a way, it's actually a higher level, in my opinion, of conviction. It's a conviction of the conscience that people have. They even say they believe there's no God, there's actually no objective, wrong or right. They'll just like believe things <laughs> that you're like, okay, why do you believe that? Because you have a conscience that, that bears witness to it. So, um, because my conscience says so. Um, so, think about drinking alcohol. Like, we've all, maybe, hopefully, I don't know, been to a party where we weren't drunk. And we looked around 
and we saw all the other people that were. Now, when you're also drunk, you don't see it. But when you're sober, you realize it's kind of ugly. It's kind of like people not at their best. Right? Like, we kind of, my point here is like, we kind of know that getting drunk isn't beautiful. It might feel beautiful in the moment, it might give us courage, it might give us, it might be fun, but like, to be honest, like, our conscience knows, like, that's not my best person, that's not my best self. I don't make my best decisions. But I can just know that without anything else. That's just my conscience. So I don't even have to be from a tribe or a religious background or a cultural background or whatever. I can just know that just because I know that. It's not my best. The next level is big C conviction, not bolded. (laughs) Okay, you see how that? It's not bolded. This is uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring godly wisdom in us. So it is the Holy Spirit working while it's big C conviction, but it's not like direct thou shall not. It's like, thou shall be a wise person, and let me give you some help, right? So an example of this with um, drinking alcohol, and we have it in the New Testament. It's not a uh, prohibition on alcohol, but Paul will say, listen, if, if somebody in your life struggles, for instance, with alcoholism, it's not great for you to always be bringing alcohol in front of them. So maybe you shouldn't drink. Maybe you should be, you shouldn't have that one drink at the party. You should be Connected to them, their buddy, their pal, and not consuming. But he's not saying that's for everyone. He's saying that may be for you. Or maybe you have a problem with alcohol. Maybe that's for you. Drink, having, uh, not getting drunk, but having a drink of a glass of wine or something. Clearly not a problem. Jesus, at the Last Supper, is having a glass of wine. But in many occasions, for many people, you should abstain from alcohol. That's godly wisdom. But it's not a complete prohibition on the practice. Okay? You see that? But then we have conviction. (laughs) Big C, and the rest are capitalized as well, just to make it clear. Bold. Because God says. Because God says. What are the things that God says? Well, for one, everything he said in here. He's like, this is that important, I'm going to put it in pen. If you can't erase, I've said it. Now, it takes some work to understand what it says. And it can be misapplied and misused, and people can use these words to beat people over the head. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, God says. The Holy Spirit inspired these these words. So God says. So what does the Scripture forbid when it comes to alcohol? And it does forbid it, getting drunk. doesn't say you can't have a drink. It says do not get drunk. See the difference? I I want you to... I don't have a ton of time, but I want, I, want, I want you just to feel the ladder towards... So that doesn't mean you don't do the, the lesser levels of conviction, but, you, but, but hopefully you're seeking out the bold, big C conviction of what... what it, like, has God put any parameters around something like alcohol? And he has. For all people, at all time, do not get drunk. And if you have experienced that, I've been drunk. I ask God, because I know who Jesus is, to forgive me for not listening to his command. And he forgives me. And I try again. And if I fall short, I ask for forgiveness. God, please forgive me. Give me strength, give me power, give me wisdom from your spirit to not give in to this temptation. See how it works? But there is a level, and I don't want you to feel like you'll meet people that have all sorts of convictions, and you can help them figure out where did it come from? From the they 
my parents told me not to do this, my church, my denomination, or is this coming from God? Where did God say that? Tell me, show me. And at times that can be a very helpful, life-giving experience for people who might have even the right convictions, but they just don't know where it comes from. See? Okay. For enough time. Two conclusions. I'm going to have to save this first one for another time. So you got to come back. It's a great conclusion here. <laughs> oh, I just so want to do it. You guys know me. I so want to, I'm not going to do it. Ah, oh, okay. Basically, you get to bring people to the, I'll, I'll come back to this later. You get to bring people to the moment of conviction. You don't get to take them all the way there. You just bring them to the doorstep of the Lord and say, hope God speaks to you. You don't get to do anything. You don't convict. Only God can convict the heart. You just get to connect, converse, bring them to the moment. Teaser, come back another week. You get to be like John the Baptist. Oh, gosh, I can't believe I don't get to do this one. Okay, that's okay. Moving right along, let me um, tell you the second thing, conclusion I want you to know about. Washing machines. Washing machines are important, right? But sometimes you, like, how do I know this conviction I have is, is a quality? It's good. It's from the Holy Spirit, and it's not man-made. How do I know that? Well, you got to run it through the wash cycle over and over and over again. I think I got, I think I got this right. I think I got this right. I'm going to connect, converse, consider, feel conviction. Confess. I'm going to do it again and again and again and again and again. And over time, you say like, man, I got this. I got this shirt from a reputable store. I got this shirt. It's a high quality brand. It's very expensive. I paid a lot for it, so it must be good quality. Lots of other people wear this same shirt. So, so I think I can trust it. I think I can trust it. But over time, as you go through the process, even though the thing comes from a good place or other things that you bought in that store actually did hold up, you might find that this particular conviction does not because you ran it through the wash cycle. <laughs> and over time, you start to realize it's falling apart. It's not high quality. It's not from the Holy Spirit. And so you then ask yourself, okay, when, when, when I run this wash cycle, when do I feel most convicted about this particular conclusion? Is it A? Am I, am I most convicted about it when I'm talking to my other friends, my coworkers, my peers, those people in my same socioeconomic um, generation, or do I feel like I'm most convicted when I'm just talking to my church friends, my religious friends? Or do I feel most convicted about this thing when I'm actually talking to God through reading his scripture and praying? And if the answer is A or the answer is B, you should be very suspicious of this conviction. You say, like, I don't really feel convicted when I read his scripture about that. Then it might not be from God. But you've got to run it through the wash cycle over and over and over again. And over time, you start to see there's certain things that just hold up. And they're most profound. You feel that they're most true when you're talking and conversing with God. That's the stuff you want to hold on to. The other stuff you may need to throw out. Take it to the goodwill. Or maybe just burn it. Finally, um, shoot. I don't have time to read it. Oh, give me more time. I don't have time. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. Because sometimes we wonder, well, what's the conviction of the Holy Spirit feel like? How do I know? What's it feel like? And I think sometimes we think it's, it's always going to be some sensation. I've got to read the quote, Ryan. Throw it up. I've got to do it. Okay. C.S. Lewis is talking. He's gotten a letter from a friend who's experienced conversion, which 
The first time conviction happens that Jesus is Lord, that's conversion. And so he's gotten this letter, and he's very excited. And he writes this back to his friend. He says, all our prayers are being answered, and I thank God for it. But, he says, the only possibly, not necessarily, unfavorable symptom of what I've just read about is that you are just a trifle bit too excited. (laughs) It is quite right that you should feel that, quote, and he's quoting from the letter, something terrific has happened to you, it has, and be, quote, all glowy, accept these sens- or, sorry, sorry, accept these sensations, receive them with thankfulness as birthday cards from God. But remember that they are only greetings, not the real gift. I mean this. It is not the sensation, the sensations that are the real thing. The real thing is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which cannot usually be, perhaps not ever, experienced as sensation or emotion. These sensations are merely the response of your nervous system. Don't depend on them. Otherwise, when they go and you are once more emotionally flat, you, uh, as you certainly will be quite soon, you might think that the real thing has gone as well. But it won't. It will be there when you can't feel it. It may even be most operative when you can feel it least. So just, I want you... Like the things you get most riled up about, the things you get most passionate about, emotional about, aren't necessarily, yeah, I got one, another half of this quote coming, just a sec, aren't necessarily, Ryan's telling me there's more, yeah, okay, aren't necessarily conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is less tingly and more dense, sinks into your bones, it's like weightiness, it's like an anchor that keeps you grounded so that you aren't tossed to and fro by the waves and swells of cultural change, cultural ideas, political opinions, just that thing that just grounds you. It's not always the thing that gets your emotions going. So C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. He says, don't imagine it is all, quote, going to be an exciting adventure from now on. It won't. Excitement of whatever sort never lasts. This is the push to start you off on your first bicycle. You'll be left to lots of dogged pedaling later on, (laughs) and no need to feel depressed about it either. It will be good for your spiritual leg muscles, so enjoy the push while it lasts, but enjoy it as a treat, not as something normal. (laughs) It's just so, I mean, that's the Christian life. Like, yes, you might experience that uh, your heart is on fire when you come to realize who Jesus is, or that you've been living in sin, and now you can step into freedom. Like, but that's just the push to get you going on your bicycle. Then it's the conviction that keeps you doggedly pedaling through the rest of your spiritual life. That's what takes you all the way to the mountaintop. God gives you that push, so you might experience some of that emotion, that feeling, but don't be depressed when you're not experiencing all the time. The convictions, they sink deeper than that, and they're there even when you don't know that they're there. And then what will happen at a time is life will hit you. A wind will push you over that you thought would knock you on your you-know-what. And then you don't fall over. Because God has placed the conviction of what's true and right and good in your bones. There's a story about this, about a guy named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a successful Chicago lawyer, but he lost everything in the great Chicago fire. His entire financial reputation, he, he, he ended up leaving the legal practice and going to work in the ministry with a guy named D.L. Moody. You might know D.L. Moody's name. 
and D.L. Moody asked him to come over to a revival that he was planning in England. They both lived in Chicago. D.L. Moody was going to England, and so Spafford said, okay, I'll bring my whole family with. And so uh, this is before planes, so they hopped on. um, Actually, what Spafford did is he sent his family, his wife and four daughters, ahead of him on a ship. And he got a phone call from his wife, and he said, or a telegram, have phones. Only I survived. That's four daughters killed at sea. And as uh, Horatio got on the boat and went to be with his wife, it was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean that he penned the words to one of the most famous hymns of all time. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, what happened? He had conviction about who God is, that he's good, for him, and that he can't see everything like God can. And his soul sang a song that millions and millions have sung since. As he confessed out of his deep conviction for who God is, even in a trial, that brings me to tears thinking about it. I can't, I can't as a dad, I can't imagine it. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I'd sing that song. Sometimes you don't even know how deep your conviction is until that wind really blows. But that's why you want to seek it now. Know what's true and right and good because you don't know what's coming down the road. The greatest truth that we have to wrestle with that unfortunately we can't know through conversation alone or consideration alone is did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? We can get close to it. I can give you all sorts of historical evidences for this possibly happened or this probably happened or there's no other good explanation for what happened next except that he rose from the dead. But I can't get you all the way there. I can't transport you to that moment so that you, like the disciples, could hug and eat with and feel the physical risen body of Jesus. All I can do is bring you to the, to the, to the precipice and ask you to ask God, is it true? Did you raise Jesus from the dead? But it's the most important truth that we need the conviction of the Spirit to confirm in our heart. Horatio had it. He knew. He knew in a way that's beyond this world. He would see his daughters again. So he can write, it is well 